Well, I do want to thank Rachel, actually, for all those candles. It has been just a pleasure to see that light increasing throughout this Epiphany season. So thank you, Rachel, even though I did knock one over. But quick save there, Steve. Thank you. Let's pray together. Precious Heavenly Father, thank you that your Son, Jesus, is glorious. Holy Spirit, we ask, open our eyes anew to the incomparable joy of this remarkable truth as we open your word this afternoon. Amen. From the very first sentence of his gospel, Mark declares, God has broken into history. Like the Gospel of John, Mark uses the language of beginning, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Of course, that beginning includes the beginning of all time. Last week, we looked at Jesus' authority, even over a demon that had the gall to enter the synagogue, the place of worship of the one true God. When Jesus confronted that unclean spirit, it had no choice but to name Jesus for who he is, the Holy One of God. But Jesus said to it, be silent. The gospel will go forward as the triune God plans. Our passage picks up Jesus' movement, still on the Sabbath, but now Jesus and a few disciples step away from the public eye and enter the privacy of Peter's home. Immediately, they bring to Jesus' attention the illness of Peter's mother-in-law, incapacitated by a fever. In our day, with the benefits of medical care and antibiotics, it's difficult for us to appreciate the potential seriousness of a fever. But in the first century, people died from less than what this woman had. I love that the first thing this wonderful woman does when Jesus heals her is to serve. This is the same Greek word for serve used of Jesus when he took up the towel and washed the disciples' feet. Remembering our recent series in the book of Philippians, serving is the core of who Jesus is and what it means to look like him. I wonder if we could say that Peter's mother-in-law becomes a deacon. You gotta love it, just saying. Jesus and his newly minted disciples were going to need that nourishing, strengthening serving because as the Sabbath drew to a close, the faithful Jews were allowed to be out and about again, and the whole city, hopefully that's hyperbole on Mark's part, showed up at Peter's house. Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He would not permit those demons to speak either because they knew him. A veritable flood of human need showed up when Jesus began his ministry. Jesus was not surprised or intimidated by unclean spirits, disease, chatty demons. In fact, he was just beginning to show forth his glory. By the way, this demonstration 
of his glory has nothing to do with showing off and everything to do with saving the entire human race from the destructive course on which they were and we are careening. Just after the new year, John and I listened together to the entire book of Mark on the Courage for Life Bible app. It was refreshing to hear it as one piece, which somehow gave me the bug to reread The Silmarillion by J.R.R. Tolkien, because it too is full of action, urgency, and battles against evil forces, and its beginning too is a declaration of the power of the Creator as fully in charge of creation. The Gospel of Mark and the Silmarillion share a strong recognition of the glory and power, majesty and dominion of God over all. Tolkien imagines how evil comes into and is intertwined with good at the creation of Middle-earth. Yet, said evil does not even have the potential to fully triumph. The first time I read the Silmarillion, it fired my own imagination toward a deeper understanding of the Genesis creation narrative, especially as it is echoed in the book of Revelation, where hope is justified and the sovereignty of the Creator is fully revealed. Just listen with me for a minute or two. There was Eru, the one who in Arda is called Iluvatar, and he made first the Ainur, the holy ones that were the offspring of his thought, and they were with him before aught else was made. And it came to pass that Iluvatar called together all the Ainur and declared to them a mighty theme, unfolding to them things greater and more wonderful than he had yet revealed and the glory of its beginning and the splendor of its end amazed the Ainur, so that they bowed before Iluvatar and were silent. Then Iluvatar said to the Ainur, Of the theme that I have declared to you, I will now that ye make in harmony together a great music. And since I have kindled you with the flame imperishable, ye shall show forth your powers in adorning this theme. And so the voices of the Ainur in instrumental and choral capacities fashioned upon the theme of Iluvatar, and Iluvatar sat and hearkened. But as the theme progressed, it came into the heart of Melkor, to interweave matters of his own imagining, not in accord with the theme of Iluvatar, for he sought therein to increase the power and the glory of the part assigned to himself. For he had gone often alone into the void places, seeking the imperishable flame. For desire grew hot within him to bring into being things of his own, yet he found not the fire for it is with Iluvatar. Melkar wove into his own desires music, and the music faltered, and dissonance arose and spread as some began to attune their music to his, and the theme became turbulent. 
Then Iluvatar lifted a new theme amid the storm, and it gathered power and beauty. Yet Melkor contended with it, and the sound was of war and violence. Then again, Iluvatar lifted a new theme amid the confusion, and it could not be contained, bearing within it beauty and sorrow, but chiefly beauty. And it took up the theme of strife and wove it into its own solemn pattern. And Iluvatar arose a third time, and in one chord, deeper than the abyss, the music ceased. Then Iluvatar spoke and said, Mighty are the Ainur, and mightiest among them is Melkor, but that he may know, and all the Ainur, that I am Iluvatar. These things that ye have sung, I will show them forth, that ye may see what ye have done. And thou, Melkor, shalt see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. We desperately need to hold in our very being the grand narrative of our Christian story so that we may appreciate and understand the close-ups of our own lives and times. We have an eternal hope, an unseen real, and we've already been clued in to the end of the story. Beginning with his 40-day wilderness temptation by the devil, Jesus opposes and confronts the enemy of this world. He is the melodic theme itself, full of power and beauty, taking hold of strife and confusion, turning dissonance into harmony, showing forth the light of life, which the darkness cannot comprehend. Next to God himself, the ruler of this world is more powerful than any other entity in heaven or on earth, writes Fleming Rutledge. In Christ, God brings judgment upon the world and finally destroys the usurper. This New Testament cosmology is essential to understand what Jesus' glory really amounts to, and no account of the life of Jesus is adequate without it. Anglican priest and author David Roseberry writes, the term unclean spirit and other terms that refer to the supernatural active presence of the devil is used nearly 70 times in the New Testament. This makes the devil demons, unclean spirits, one of the leading opponents of the ministry of Jesus and of the early church in the book of Acts. It doesn't have a small part in the biblical drama. It's a major player. But like Melkor in the Silmarillion or Sauron in the Lord of the Rings, evil never has the power to keep Iluvatar or God from his good purposes. The picture Mark gives of Jesus and his disciples is full 
of action, demonstrating that good purpose time and time again. And indeed, Jesus is amazingly glorious. People would have ignored him if he had only preached the good news and did not address human need. Yet signs and wonders were not the purpose of Jesus' ministry. At the end of his gospel, Mark is careful to note that the message was confirmed by the signs that accompanied it. Keep your eyes on Jesus, not on the signs. Just as he lifted up Simon's mother-in-law, Jesus himself was headed towards his own lifting up and pouring out on the cross. The word become flesh is just beginning to reveal his glory. Our Old Testament passage tells a precursor, glorious story of the prophet Elisha's ministry with the Shunammite woman, the gift of a son, the death of that special son, and the miraculous resurrection lifting up of that son. But the Shunammite son died again. Everyone Jesus ministers to or heals dies. Jesus' mission is to deal with the enemy of life and flourishing once and for all. He seeks to release us from our bondage to sin and death under the reign of that evil one. Let my people go. Someday, we will hear the theme afresh when he takes each of us by the hand and lifts us up. We take heart in the glory of the beginning and the splendor of the end God has in his heart for us all. Preaching, healing, deliverance, and even prayer are not separate categories for Jesus. They are all what it means to redeem all things, to take back territory the enemy has stolen, to restore our relationship with our Creator. In his book on the Gospel of Mark, Tim Keller writes, Mark takes the, the existence of demonic activity, of a continued battle against evil, personal, supernatural beings as a self-evident aspect of reality, a fact of life. Do you ever pray for people you've never met but you've greatly benefited from? Sometimes I pray for podcast hosts and authors that I've deeply appreciated. And recently, one such person was remarking on some of the struggles that he and his wife had come through, specifically naming his own negative proclivities through those struggles. And as I listened, I thought, I wonder what his wife's name is. And what do we do when we wonder? We look it up on whatever search engine we, fire, we favor. The first article I saw with her name on it was titled with this quote, I had made peace with dying, but the thought of being crippled was harder. As I read on, I learned that she had suffered with chronic progressive disease symptoms for many years and had slowly learned in her brokenness to fully trust God. Quoting her, most of us live with a sense of entitlement, even if we are not aware of it. We assume tomorrow will be like today, but when you're sick, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Jesus showed me that I am more than I do. I am loved and beloved of God. 
but I had to grieve that my life wasn't what I always dreamed it would be. And in the process of that acceptance, God became my anchor. She lived with her puzzling illness with increasing symptoms for 15 years. But in October of 2020, everything changed. She received a call from her brother saying that he had learned of a curse placed on her great-grandmother and her bloodline, declaring that every firstborn girl would suffer from a terrible disease or have an early death. She says, we looked back on our family tree and the facts were shocking. Every firstborn daughter on my father's side either died young or suffered from severe illness. She and her husband contacted a godly man who had experience in breaking curses. She sat down and he broke the curse on her and her bloodline in Jesus' name. She says, it was unemotional and felt transactional, but at that moment, I felt like something lifted off me and I have been completely healthy ever since. This is a remarkable and powerful and hopeful story, isn't it? I pray, though, that we hear the theme of her leaning into God as her anchor when she had no hope of recovery. Perhaps you remember the story told later in the book of Mark where the disciples attempted to exercise a demon and they were unable to do so. Jesus reminds them the source of their power is prayer and fasting. God does the work. We merely put ourselves in a position to cooperate with him. Pray, obey, fast. Perhaps you also remember the 72 disciples sent out on a mission in the book of Luke. And when they come back rejoicing, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but that your names are written in heaven. After the intense ministry of the Sabbath day in our passage, Jesus withdrew to pray. He gets up early, seeking the company of his Father, and prays. Jesus spends time in prayer placing all his confidence, indeed his very life, in God. He is the beloved Son, but Jesus' power and authority come from his trusting relationship with God, which he does not neglect. Jesus was able to serve us fickle, sinful human creatures that we are because, as John writes, Jesus, knowing where he had come from and where he was going, took up the towel. Jesus set his face toward the cross, our salvation. I wonder if there's one person in this room who hasn't sought the Lord in prayer for healing or for the solution to a problem or even for his strong arm of deliverance from a besetting sin. We all want more of Jesus' healing, delivering, consoling, intervening presence in our lives regarding the things we care deeply about and the people we so desperately love. In this, we are very much like the crowd in Capernaum who did not want to let Jesus go. Stay with us, heal us, deliver us, O Lord. 
Or as the psalmist implores God, give heed to my cry, for I'm brought low. Bring me out of prison. We come lifting up our faith in God. We come to Jesus believing God is good and God is for us. Jesus has much to say to us about the confusions, temptations, and deceptions of our lives, but we must listen to him and obey. We must give and receive forgiveness. Let us not suppress our hunger and thirst for the goodness of God in this life. Let us not succumb to the temptation to give up or to give in. Jesus wasn't seeking fame from people, but faith. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. Jesus, in all his fullness and glory, is a living reality today. He lives to make intercession for us. He lives for us, desiring that we share in abundant life, even in the midst of our particular suffering. Let us be ones who seek the bearer of the good news, the Son of God, who takes all the sickness and evil of our particular life and times, restoring and redeeming, if not in this life, in the age to come. Let us take comfort in the one who can say, no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the wiles of the, of the devil. Tim Keller says, the armor is a symbol of the benefits and privileges of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he sent his only beloved Son, that whoever believes in him may be saved. Stand firm. Pray in the Spirit. While Jesus dwelt on this earth, he healed many and delivered many from demons, but not all. As we draw close to God in our struggles, let us have the faith of Simeon, to whom it was promised that he would see the Messiah, and he did, waiting until he was very old. Let us have the faith of those who saw promises fulfilled and of those who died in faith, not having seen what was promised, since God had provided something better. Some of us will experience healing and deliverance in this life, yet we will all die. The only battle that really matters is the final battle. Stand firm, take heart, pray in the spirit, seek relationship with the God of the universe who calls you by name. Jesus is always powerful. Jesus is always glorious. For thine, Jesus, is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen.